Hello again, Ars Technica listeners. This is the third installment of a four-part interview with neuroscientist, New York Times bestselling author, podcaster, and controversial public intellectual, Sam Harris. In today's installment, we're really starting to get into Sam's worldview and philosophy. And to set some context at the opening here, we're talking about Sam's 2004 book, End of Faith, which first put him on the map as both a thinker and a writer. And away we go. So within 24 hours, I was writing what became that book. I mean, I was writing initially a book proposal, but Mm -hmm. I wrote essentially the first chapter of that book. You know, the very next day I started writing it. And so 9-11 came, I had finished my coursework. I was just starting my my neuroimaging work. I was already focused on belief, you know, and religious belief is a subset of that. And I had just spent this previous decade plus focused on just questions of spiritual concern and what is true in religion and why do we have these the, these competing worldviews that are religious in the first place and uh, what is it necessary to believe to have a meaningful life. And um, then people started flying planes into our buildings, clearly expecting paradise. I mean, mm-hmm. This is a w- act of worship, you know, and we immediately start lying to ourselves about why they did it. And because I, I, mean, I had read the Quran, I was, I was not, hadn't focused on, on Islam to any great degree, but I was pretty sure I knew what these guys were up to, mm-hmm. right? Like the moment I, I heard about what Al Qaeda was and, you know, it just, you have someone like Osama bin Laden who could be doing anything he wants. He's got hundreds of millions of dollars. He could be living in Paris and dating models, but no, he's, de- he's decided to live in a cave and plot, you know, the, the takeover of, of the world for the one true faith, I immediately recognized the spiritual intensity of that enterprise. Mm-hmm. He was not faking his belief. He believed what he said he believed. And it was only rational to take his stated beliefs at face value. I had been surrounded by people who believed the, the, the Hindu version or the Buddhist version of karma and rebirth, right? Mm-hmm. And they, they believed it absolutely to their toes. And I understood why they believed it. And, I, and, me, and many of them were having intense experiences of the sort I was having in meditation or on psychedelics. And there was no doubt in my mind that members of Al-Qaeda were having intensely meaningful experiences of both of solidarity you know, among the, the their fellow jihadists and just Many of us have gotten into things that that are that suddenly seem to answer much of what we're we were lacking in our day to day experience. So that's, you yourself did in college, yeah. But I mean, even even seemingly more trivial things. So you, every, we all know that, you, that certain people, you know, they become vegan or whatever, and all mm-hmm. of a sudden it's all about getting their diet straight, right? Or they get really into yoga, you know. And this happened to me with Brazilian jiu jitsu. I mean, like I got into Brazilian jiu jitsu, and all of a sudden, it's the only thing I can talk about with people. Like it's just, you know, I'm become a cult recruiter for for <laughs> uh, jiu jitsu. And I mean, you go down the rabbit hole with these things, and suddenly you have just immense energy for paying attention. It just becomes effortless to pay attention to to, to this thing. Now, you so just imagine something that has all of these components. It has the Kind of the spiritual component, the prof- one you, you, you actually believe the doctrine. So you believe that this life is just a way station here, and the only thing that matters here is getting your head straight about what's on the other side of death. 
you have to believe the right things now. Mm-hmm. You have to get your life straight now so that when you die, you go to the right place, right? There's no question that millions of people, billions of people, really, most people who have ever lived believe something like that mm-hmm. about the, the way the universe is structured. Um, and Islam, uh, in particular, this especially doctrinaire version of it, gives a uniquely clear picture of just how all of that is organized. I mean, it's just, it's a very self-consistent view of just what you need to believe and how you need to live to get to the right place. Imagine having that kind of moral and, and spiritual clarity in your life, which immediately translates into a recipe for how to live. I mean, there's just zero ambiguity about how society should be structured, how men and women should relate. But then it, 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 there's this whole political layer, which is all of these historical grievances where the West, the kind of the infidel West and the materialistic West, really the obscene West, uh, has by some just perversity of history, acquired all this power and and essentially trampled upon the only civilization that has ever mattered to, to, to God, which is the Muslim one. In addition to everything else, you have the essentially the yoga component and the diet component and the personal life straightening component. You have this political component where you have to right this great historical wrong and spread this one true faith into the to the ends of the earth. I mean, this is, this is a missionary uh, religion. This is not Judaism. This is not Buddhism. This is the way this works. Is you you spread this thing, right? Mm-hmm. And there's nothing pacifist about this. You, as a man, you get to harness all of your testosterone. You get to be essentially a spiritual James Bond, right? You get, mm-hmm. to, you get to go to war for this thing. You get to kill the bad guys. You get to be a part of a gang. But with social approbation oh, within yeah. your circles as opposed to the negatives that would come with being a gang member. Exactly. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Like, like this, is a, this is a spiritual gang it's also incredibly well-funded. I mean, if you look at how the, the Saudis have funded the, the spread of the Wahhabi-style Islam, this is this is a gang with, with petrodollars behind it. And, right? and the rewards are, are simply beyond comprehension, literally, because the rewards are paradise. Yes. I mean, it's like we see gangs motivated by, you know, money and access to women and all the things that, you know, have powered, you know, lots of gangs and lots of songs. And that's teeny compared to the upside that these folks would imagine that they're playing with. Yeah. And so you felt you knew a thing or three or 10 or a hundred about belief. Yeah. This happens, you dive into it. And it's interesting just talking about belief because I know one of the complaints that you have about a lot of your critics is that they don't seem to think the Islamists believe that which they actually say. Yeah. It's amazingly durable, this piece of confusion. But the, the idea is that the jihadists, you know, even those who blow themselves up, right, in, in, in what is, should, is just transparently uh, kind of the ultimate act of self-sacrifice, they don't believe what they say they believe. They're not being motivated by religion. Religion is at, at worst being used as a pretext for political goals and economic grievances and you know, psychological instability. Right? Or it's being cited by Islamophobes as a way to sort of uh, slander Islam yeah. by saying, well, these people did it for religious reasons. No, that's an Islamic phobic thing to say. They really did it for this other reason. What other reason is offered as an alternative to fervently held belief? Political grievances, or they were 
so despairing over the state of the the Palestinians, you know, uh, under the Israeli boot. Again, this is can be more or less plausible if you're talking about a Palestinian who's being mistreated on, in Gaza. Right. Uh, it's completely implausible when you when you look at a third generation British Muslim recruit to ISIS who had to drop out of you know the London School of Economics in order to right. go to Syria. Right. And there, and there are endless numbers of cases of people who have every other opportunity in life who become, quote, radicalized in this way. There's a deep skepticism among people who simply don't know what it's like to believe in God, mm -hmm. frankly, a real God, you know, a God who can hear your prayers, a God who can hate homosexuals, a God who cares how you live, right? Not this elastic God of just good vibes in the universe, right? People have lost touch with me. Many academics, you know, virtually every anthropologist I've ever had to talk to about this stuff, uh, many journalists, many so-called scholars of religion just don't know what it's like to believe in God and then doubt that anyone really does. They don't actually think that people believe that they'll get virgins in paradise, right? They think this is just propaganda like, and propaganda that nobody believes. Almost like the Judaism that you described of your youth, in the, yeah. where yeah. people would go to synagogue and they'll go through these things, but not because they believed in something ephemeral, but because that was sort of a cultural or a community activity. Right. People are projecting that on to, yeah. this, to this world. And you certainly are not saying this as some kind of a neocon. I mean, I imagine you probably first voted in a presidential election in 1988. How many Republicans versus Democrats yeah, have I, you voted for? I've never voted for a Republican. Never voted for no. a Republican. And you actually think that this was a decisive issue or a potentially decisive issue in the election that we just had, correct? Yeah. Um, would, you, would you care to go into that just briefly? Well, yeah, because we, we had a president for eight years that just clearly lied about this particular topic. I mean, he, he would not name the ideology that was delivering us this form of terrorism. He would just talk about generic extremism or generic terrorism. And he was just quite hectoring and sanctimonious about the dangers of naming uh, the, this ideology. So at the, at the one point he gave a speech just pushing back against his critics saying, you know, I was a huge Obama fan, actually. And, uh, you know, com when I compare him to our current president, it's just, it feels like we have kind of fallen into some new part of the, the multiverse that I never thought we would occupy. I mean, it just, it's unimaginable that we've taken this turn where you have a, a totally uh, sane, intelligent, ethical, professional person uh, running the country. And then you have this unhinged con man uh, running it next. But Obama really got this part wrong, and disastrously so. And Clinton seemed to be echoing most of his delusion on this part. I mean, she, she at one point she talked about extremist jihadism or radical jihadism, as, as though, if there's moderate, yeah, as jihadism. though there's moderate jihadism that doesn't pose a problem for us. But so in the immediate aftermath of Orlando, the, the Orlando shooting that killed, I think. 47 or 49 people. 49. It's the yeah. biggest, it was the biggest mass shooting in American history. Right. right. Yeah. So, and, and no, no yeah. parallel. Yeah. And clearly an act of jihadism. I mean, just transparently so. Everything that uh, Omar Mateen said was just, he just connected all the dots. It could not be clearer, right? And Hillary Clinton spoke only about the need for gun control and the need to be on guard against racism in the aftermath of Orlando, right? And that was just... I mean, I know, you know, I know at least one Muslim who voted for Trump just because of how uh, galling she found 
that to use Trump's language, it's all true, the political correctness and, and delusion. I mean, it was just, it was just a, a refusal based on this, this fake concern about racism. I mean, this, Islam is not a race, right? That, you know, that not at all. You and I could convert to Islam right now, and we would be part of the, this particular problem if we yeah, when I lived converted. In, when I lived in Cairo, I knew lots of Western, both American and European converts who were very sincere and devout. Muslims and they had not a drop of Arab blood in them, et cetera. Yeah. It is not a race, absolutely. Yeah. And you can be more devout. You know, it's easier to convert when because you, you're if you're actually going to convert on the basis of the the ideas. And you, the only way to convert is to actually claim to believe these specific doctrines, right? And these and the doctrines get fairly inimical to most things we care about in the 21st century very, very quickly. You can't convert to the lived experience of just having been a nominal Muslim surrounded by Muslim culture and you know, in, analogous to the Jewish experience that we just talked about. So I, mean, I just had Fareed Zakaria on my podcast and, you know, he's not, he's a Muslim. He's a, he identifies as a Muslim. He's clearly not religious at all. I mean, he's most serious Muslims would consider him a, an apostate. I mean, he's mm. not, he's not a believer, right? But he's, he has a Muslim experience analogous to the kind of Jewish experience uh, that matters to him, and he feels solidarity with that community. You know, I can't convert to that, right? Because I don't have that experience. But I could become a member of ISIS if if I check the right boxes. But so Hillary was so such an obscurantist on this issue, and again, in the immediate aftermath of this horror, when you're having attacks in Europe that are also enormous and seeming, you know, to, to presage more to come yes. in our own society, right? And this need not have been a winning issue for Trump, but it was among the two or three things that... Yeah, in an election that yeah. tight, there oh, yeah. are arguably probably dozens of winning issues because yeah. there, anything that swung a few tens yeah. of thousands 75, of votes... 75,000 votes. Yeah, yeah in, in, in the right or the wrong place. Now, you mentioned you know, political correctness and language, you have stated a few times that you view free speech as the master value. Yeah. Um, would you care to just say briefly why that is? Because I think it's an intriguing, intriguing notion. Yeah, well, because it, it, it's the only value that allows us to reliably correct our errors, both intellectually and morally. It, it's the only, uh, it's only the only mechanism we have as a species, to keep aligning ourselves with reality as we've come to understand it. And so, it's, so you're talking about the data of science, you're talking about the data of human experience. Everything you can conceivably use to judge whether or not you're on the right track or the wrong track, and again, this applies to everything. This applies to human health, it applies to politics, it applies to economics, it applies to you know, spiritual concerns, contemplative concerns. It's the corrective mechanism. It's just, it's the only mechanism. It's and if certain ideas are inutterable, you're not going to be able to correct. Yeah. And yeah, if, if, if there are certain things that you will not, you refuse to talk about, right? And this, this is what's so wrong with dogmatism. So do, dogmas are those beliefs or those do, doctrines which... You will assert the truth of, and you'll, you'll you demand people remain aligned to, without justification, mm -hmm. right? It's like the time to justify them either never arrived or it's long past, and these merely must be accepted going forward. So these are off the table. You know, the Apostles' Creed. If you're a Catholic, that is off the table. It's instructive to know that the word dogma is not a a pejorative term in uh, religion right. like Catholicism, right? right. But 
it is everywhere else. And there's a good reason for that because it's even the most benign dogma, right, can produce immense human misery in surprising ways. And if you're not, if you can't keep correcting for it, you're just, you're just laid bare to the, to the misery. So, I mean, the, my favorite example of this, because it is such a, such a surprising mismatch between the, the seeming propositional content of the dogma and its effects in the world. Uh, but you have a dogma like it's a kind of a tw- twin dogmas. The life starts at the moment of conception and all human life is sacred, right? So like, uh, what could be wrong with that? Right? So this, this seems to be the least harmful thing you could believe about the human condition. Like, like a, how are you going to harm anyone believing those things? You're like, all human life is sacred, and human life runs all the way down to a single cell, right? Uh, what could go wrong? Well, what can go wrong is you suddenly get a technology like embryonic stem cell research, right? Where there's this immense promise, you know, obviously unforeseen by the Bible, but also unforeseen by every generation of humanity, short of, you know, perhaps someone in, in the 1930s could, could have foreseen this was coming, but not much before that, right? And you have this immense promise of alleviating just scores of conditions. Boundless that, suffering. You know, just boundless suffering, full yeah. body burns and spinal cord injury and Alzheimer's, I mean, just just you name it. Who knows how how much promise this technology holds for um, for medical therapy? And then you have people, and again, these people are the most influential people in our society, from presidents and senators on down, and and reli- religious academics, and and you know bioethicists treat, who aren't religious but still treat these magical doctrines as somehow deserving of respect. Uh, but you have this idea that every fertilized ovum contains a human soul. You've got now souls in petri dishes, just just as vulnerable as the baby Jesus, that cannot be sacrificed, no matter what the argument is on the other side. You, you can have you know people with Parkinson's or or little girls with with in wheelchairs. Doesn't matter. I'm just as concerned about the life in this petri dish. And you know we've sort of moved on because the, there have been workarounds found biologically, but. Basically, we dragged our feet for a good 20 years yeah. uh, there. And who knows what medical insights weren't uh, had as a result of that. And what do you feel about the value of anonymous speech? There are inarguable value to anonymous speech in brutal dictatorships where dissidents and others can get into enormous trouble, get tortured and killed if they say something that gets detected by somebody who's incredibly nefarious and has really no ethical standing in the minds of most folks in this country. So th- I think there's certain things, I'm, I'm not talking about those those relatively inarguable things, mm. but I know that you don't enable comments on your uh, web pages. Right. I know that you have had concerns about the quality of speech in places like the YouTube forums and so forth. Do you feel that there is a fundamental difference between the value of anonymous speech and, for lack of a better word, owned speech? Or do you feel that anonymous speech is every bit as much of the master value, in a sense, that you attribute to free speech writ large? Well, I wouldn't prevent it in in most cases. Certainly, there's like the whistleblower's role for it. I'm in favor of journalists protecting the anonymity of their sources if you know great harm would come to the sources. Mm-hmm. Uh, generally speaking, I think it, it it is one of the variables that accounts for why 
so much of what is said online is so toxic. I mean, mm -hmm. pe people feel a license to be jerks that they wouldn't feel if they had to, to own everything they said. And then what about tools that enable tremendous anonymity to anybody? And I'm thinking particularly of Tor. Tor, which is ironically a product of the United States Navy. Mm. It is something that I have no doubt has masked the identity of lots of dissidents in ways that any reasonable person would applaud. But at the same time, it preserves the anonymity and the secure communication, certainly between terrorists. There's an enormous amount of child pornography there. Yeah, again, it just cuts both ways. I think it, there's an argument to be made that, that something like that, I mean, something like strong encryption is just inevitable. It's just a mathematical fact that it's available and it will therefore always be available to anyone who's going to take the time to, to acquire it. I, and this is something I, I kind of stumbled into on one of my podcasts or early when, when the, the first controversy around the FBI's unlocking of an iPhone yep. came online. An iPhone, it was, was sort of uncrackable by law enforcement. If, if you attempt the passcode too many times, it just goes yeah, into permanent lockdown. It, yeah. yeah, yeah. And apparently no one can get in or almost no one can get in. And Apple was claiming not to have devised its own ability to get in. And that struck me as a, a way of punting on Apple's part that was not ethically justifiable. They refused to help the FDI, yeah, FBI, like, yeah. in effect. Yeah. And, and their argument was that if they created a mechanism whereby they could unlock, you know, answer a court order and unlock an iPhone, that mechanism would be impossible to keep safe. Then everyone would have a hackable iPhone. And I, didn't, I never really bought that. I felt like they could, if they had wanted to keep it safe... It, they, they could probably keep it safe. And it seems to me that people do keep, I mean, they, they keep other trade secrets safe, presumably. And um, Formula for Coca-Cola. Yeah. You know, if, if, that, if those are the keys to the kingdom, then, then presumably they could, they could keep it safe. Obviously, the tech community took a very strong position against the, the government there. Yep. But we don't have the analogous right in any other area of our lives. So like, but when you, when you draw an analogy to, for instance... I want to be able to build a room in my house where I can put things and even put evidence of all my criminal behavior that no one on earth in principle can get access to, right? So there's no court order, there's no government process, there's no, there's no evidence of my own culpability that could be, could be so clear they could get that room unlocked. It's almost like right? your personal diplomatic pouch or having some kind of like privileged communication with a lawyer. That is an unlockable box right. legally, but it's a physical box in this yeah. case. Yeah. And so no one, no one claims to feel that they have a right to that thing. Yeah. Right. It's not feasible. We can't easily build it. Right. It, or we can't build or it at all. Or if we could, there would be unlikely to be a mass movement for everybody to get one of those yeah. things. Yeah. And, yeah. And, and, and so if someone had managed to build such a thing, and we had reason to believe that evidence of his, you know, vast criminality was in there. There was right? a severed head in it or something yeah, right. like so that. Right. So there's a murder that is going unsolved every day because we can't open this closet. Yeah. Right. The, his argument that that's his personal property, right, that they can't be opened, that wouldn't hold water to to really for really any of the people who are quite exercised about the necessity of keeping their iPhones yeah. private, right? And then you have the cases. So I spoke to, I didn't have him on the podcast, but um, I spoke to Cyrus Vance, who's the, uh, I think he probably still is the district attorney of Manhattan. Junior, not the former secretary of yeah, state. Yeah, right. Yeah. And so we kind of ran through this with him for a couple of hours. And he was telling me about, you know, murders that are unsolved, where 
they have that they they know that the murder victim was texting with someone up to the moment she was killed or that the wow or that the video the camera was on right like 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 people who had taken pictures of their murderers with the intention of yeah. them being seen yeah. presumably right yeah and Apple was declining to help unlock these iPhones, right? And they had, they had at that point, some hundreds of phones. Right? Really? And, and, yeah. And so... And this is just one state. Yeah. And, and I mean, a big you, state, but yeah. still. And you can imagine, imagine being the parent of your, your, your daughter gets murdered and it is possible to get the data, right? Because she took the picture yeah. wanting her murderer to go to jail. Yeah. And now all of a sudden it's a violation of her privacy yeah. or to she, see that picture. Exactly. The fact wow. that we can't find some mechanism by which to right that wrong yeah. doesn't make sense to me. So I, I, you know, I'm, I'm on both sides of this issue. I'm, I'm in favor of good people not having their privacy needlessly invaded, obviously, and having secure communication. But at a certain point, if you are behaving badly enough, I think we, the state has an interest in sorting out what you've done and, and why you did it and who you collaborated with. And this controversy is going to come back to us a hundredfold the moment we have reliable lie detection technology. Yeah. Right? And, and I should also say that we have solved this, this problem in the opposite way where people have the opposite intuition with respect to DNA technology. So like you, you do not have a right to keep your DNA secret now, right? right? You can't say, no, no, you can't take a swab of my saliva because that's private data, you know, that I don't want you to have access to. No. And that would, in a certain level, be more logical for people yes. to say, like, I'm sorry, that is so intimate, you may not. And I, right. It would be, in some ways, more defensible. Right. Yeah. Right. But it's not. And we've just, we've just steamrolled over that sanctity um, because there's a, there's a forensic imperative to do it. You know, there's an a, overwhelming it, benefit to social yeah. benefit and, and, and crime-finding benefit. Yeah. But the argument to the people are treating their iPhones essentially as a, a part of their minds that they don't want read, right? Yeah. For, for understandably, because there's so much information there. But when we can actually read minds, right, that that's going to be is, do you have a right to take the Fifth uh, Amendment uh, privilege when we have lie detection technology that can sort out whether or not you're telling the truth? Yeah. And I mean, there are philosophical problems with with relying on lie detection technology. I mean, there are people who, well, we know there are people who could be delusional, who could be telling the truth and, and perhaps giving a false confession, right? Well, so one that, of your guests, Lawrence Wright, wrote a book about that very phenomenon. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. yeah, that was fascinating. So, I mean, that's a, a wrinkle we need to sort out. It seems to me that there are certain moments where any of the claims of personal liberty and privacy just break down. I mean, you make the stakes high enough and you make a person's culpability obvious enough yeah. that, you know, we should be getting into their phones and computers by any means possible. And because of the San Bernardino connection, this actually touches on another interest and another thing that interests me quite a bit. Just when you, when you sit down to write a book that's set in the very near future, certain depictions that you make of the near future almost inevitably either come true or fail to come true during the period that you're writing, mm. particularly if you aspire for your book to be set roughly nine seconds into the future, which is what I did with this one. Right. And one of the things in the world of After On is lone wolf terrorism and the self-organizing lone wolf terrorism 
that is inspired by ideology as opposed to by a central group is a feature of the world of After On. And to my absolute dismay, I take absolutely no pride in quote-unquote predicting this correctly, that has in fact started occurring to a significantly greater degree in the couple of years since I started writing the book. Now, you made the point in your very recent podcast with Graham Wood that in some ways ISIS-inspired attacks are more scary than ISIS-directed ones. Mm. And he made the counterpoint that ISIS-directed ones tend to have much, much higher death tolls. Yeah. But the ISIS-inspired ones, is it just their ability to pop up anywhere and spread like a virus that makes them more scary to you? Yeah, well, it's the demonstrated effectiveness and spreadability of the ideas that is is the scariest thing. I mean, there, there, there are two things to worry about in this world. You can worry about bad people, and you can worry about bad ideas. And bad ideas are much worse than bad people, because they can potentially inhabit the minds of good people and get even good people to do bad things, right? So I'm under no illusions, and many people are, that all the people who joined ISIS are bad people, right? They're, 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 they're just people who believe these bad ideas. You know, so I mean, many people imagine that ISIS is acting like a bug light for psychopaths, right? Mm-hmm. And so that only people who would do bad things anyway, they would have found some other reason to rape and kill and, and take sex slaves and cut people's heads off. And they just happen to find this reason. No, that's absolutely not what's happening. We, and we know that that's not what's happening. There are psychologically normal people who become as convinced of the veracity of ISIS's worldview as I became convinced of the utility of meditation practice. Right. right? And, then, and then they do something very extreme. What I did was very extreme. I dropped out of a, a great college, right, and, and kind of derailed my life in kind of conventional terms and forsook every other reasonable ambition but to understand the nature of, of consciousness more mm. for this significant period of time, right? Mm. That, you know... You change a few of the, the relevant beliefs, I could have been, you know, John Walker Lind in Afghanistan with the Taliban, right? It's like, yeah. I, I recognize a person like that as someone who is very familiar to me, you know, and John Walker Lind still, he's in prison now, he still believes I all know. this stuff. And he's getting out soon. Yeah. And the force multiplier element of it matters a great deal to me because I actually think a raw material that a lot of these nihilistic organizations use are, are folks who happen to be feeling suicidal today. Mm. Humanity produces them in abundance and has across continents and societies and centuries, about a million people will kill themselves this year. And by the way, it's very hard, I think probably impossible, if I were recruiting suicide bombers, I would probably stay away from people who are happy and centered and empowered because talking that person into killing themselves at all is an enormous lift compared to talking somebody who's already coming to me out of their minds with, you know, addiction, with depression, with chemical imbalances in their minds, whatever. So society produces this raw material in some abundance and some percentage of those people are inclined to take people with them. And some of those people are secular. I mean, the guy who shot up the school at Newtown, he committed suicide. He was relying on the police to kill him. He was committing suicide and taking as many people with him as possible. Likewise, the guy who murdered the five 
cops in Dallas. That was, and he didn't strap a bomb on him. Likewise, the Columbine kids. And there now, was, a, wasn't there a Lufthansa pilot? Yeah, years Andreas Lubitz. Yeah, and so, yeah. so that's the second force multiplying. This gets me nervous. So when somebody gets into that mental state, my feeling is that there are two force multipliers that stand out. One is what is now animating them. And this gets to what you're talking about, the power of these ideas. I mean, if you look at Mateen, the Orlando killer, he was a third-rate loser who failed at everything. He had been dumped by two wives before the age of 30. He could not hold down a job. I would imagine that in many parallel universes, he's the kind of guy who might have killed himself or might have killed an ex-wife or two ex-co-workers or something. Yeah, he probably but also had some kind of gay shame self-hating, thing He had yeah. some self-hating thing going on. Yeah. But, but there are many, many hundreds of people like that who do themselves in. He got animated by an idea that inspired him to go out and literally commit the biggest mass murder in the history of a country with a very high bar for biggest ever. He killed 49 people. Now, the second force multiplier, as you just indicated, is going to be weaponry. So this is a chilling fact. I wish I didn't know it, but I do. In the two and a half years leading up to the Newtown attack, there was a series of very strange, unrelated school attacks in China mass murder attacks. And there were 10 of them. And by chilling irony, the last one was literally just a few hours before the Newtown attack. Now, those 10-ish attacks combined, all 10 of them put together, had roughly the same number of total deaths as the lone Newtown attack, because they were being committed literally with knives and hammers. Whereas the the person who attacked in Newtown had the benefit of living in a society that sells near cousins of machine guns to people who are on the no-fly list. Not that he was on the no-fly list, but, but we permit that. So there's this huge force multiplier of weaponry. And then if you're Andreas Lubitz, Lubitz and you have an airplane, okay, fine, you kill a couple hundred people more. And with, with that chilling fact in mind, I'd like to just read a couple quotes to you from End of Faith. Our technical advances in the art of war have finally rendered our religious differences and hence our religious beliefs antithetical to our survival. We're fast approaching a time when the manufacture of weapons of mass destruction will be a trivial undertaking. While it, and these are from three different, three different quotes. Mm-hmm. While it's never been difficult to meet your maker in 50 years, it will simply be too easy to drag everyone else along to meet him with you. So we have this force multiplying spread of ideas, this proliferation of lone wolf attacks. We know what weaponry does. What weapons were you thinking about when you wrote that? When you said in 50 years, it will be simply too easy to drag everyone else. Were you thinking of bioweapons, synthetic biology? Um, Nuclear is harder to do. Yeah, although it's not that hard, actually. I mean, it was hard to invent the technology. The Manhattan Project was hard. It's not hard to render much of Los Angeles uninhabitable for 10,000 years. It's far less hard once it was invented, but still you need the resources of a a nation state to create the weapon, right? Well, you actually don't. I mean, you can actually, if you're willing to die, you can be the weapon. And what you need is the enriched uranium or the plutonium, but you could literally, you wouldn't get the the, the full yield you, you would want if you want to kill the maximum number of people, but you could take two, like, like, you know, 50 pound plates of enriched uranium and just put one on the floor and slam the other one on top of it, and it would go critical. 
You would not get a hydrogen bomb experience. Yes, but you would get, and you would be just be kind of like the ultimate dirty bomb experience, right? So you could you could actually be the bomb. But a, a much more reasonable thing to do if you're in this business is to just do something that's analogous to the bomb design of Hiroshima and Nagasaki, where you have a gun-style uh, apparatus where you're shooting uh, one piece of enriched uranium or plutonium into the other, mm-hmm. right? And just slam, essentially slamming them together harder than you could physically. And again, that the yield there is not, it's not as complete as, you know, a, a nation state would produce, but still you could get a, a multi-kiloton yield. And there, the technical issue is just getting the getting fuel, the stuff, you know? which does exist, yeah. And so, so yes, you do not need to, the the tools of a nation state. You just need a, a few engineers and machinists. You know, it's powered, I believe, simply by ordinary explosives to get the things slamming together. And I mean, there are a bunch of scenarios that have been described. To everyone's horror online, where you can do this in a shipping container, and you you know you truck it into the DC, and it can be activated with a, a cell phone and. William Perry has a terrifying bit of animation that he put online that just shows you how simple and and how totally destabilizing it would be to our society to do this. So just ima- imagine you you build a simple device, which is just, again, just like Hiroshima, you know, mm-hmm. like a 15 kiloton explosion. If you put that, you know, right next to the Capitol building, right, you just... It's like now you have a continuity of government problem. You know, who who did you kill? You killed all the senators and congressmen and, and the president. And the Supreme uh, Court and the yeah, Joint right. Chiefs and yeah. Imagine doing it in one American city, right? And then announcing, whether this is true or not, who knows, but then announcing you have similar bombs placed in... 10 other American cities. Which and, you will not identify now. Yeah. And yeah. you will do them, you'll, you'll, you'll do, you know, one a week. Um, until your demands are met, right? How do we how do we begin to respond to that, right? Now, this is a, an act of terrorism, obviously orders of magnitude beyond September 11th, which ushered in a decade of just derangement, you know, and cost trillions of, of dollars uh, in the aftermath, you know, at least two wars and, you know, financial crises. And so imagine just, uh, imagine this happening in one city. This is within the technical capacity of, a group like ISIS or Al Qaeda, you don't. It just you just need to get the fuel, and we have almost no way to prevent it. I mean, we don't. We're not screening things at right. our ports so assiduously as to know this couldn't possibly get in. So that's a cheery note to wrap things up on. But don't worry, it gets a lot spookier tomorrow. Incidentally, one of the reasons why I'm running Sam's interview now is that it synchronizes thematically with a series of essays that I'm posting to Medium.com this month on the subject of existential risk, which is to say the grim yet perversely fascinating possibility that our technical creations might just annihilate us before New Year's Eve of 2099. Like Sam, I worry about religiously motivated terrorism, but as you'll see in my second essay on Medium, over the intermediate term, I'm much more concerned about what hyper-empowered lone nihilists might do to us. By this, I mean the Las Vegas or Newtown shooters on hyper-steroids. People like this are completely indiscriminate about who they want to kill, 
whereas groups that are organized around religious hatred or national or racial hatred are all about discrimination by definition. And the scariest weapons that technologies like synthetic biology are likely to enable in the coming decades are highly indiscriminate, which makes them the domain of the lone nihilistic suicidal mass murderer who wants to kill as many random people as possible and doesn't really have much of a political agenda. I'll admit, this is not fun stuff to read about, and it certainly was not fun to write about. But if we start thinking about these things now, it will start preparing us to derail the truly profound dangers, which are fortunately, I believe, still decades off. So I hope you'll check that work out. It's at medium.com slash at symbol Rob Reed, R-O-B-R-E-I-D. And the essay that's most connected with my last several sentences is part two, which is called Deterrence and the Undeterrable. I should note that Medium is running this work in their editorially curated, paid, members-only section. The good news is they give everyone access to a few free articles per month with essentially zero friction. That's it for now. I hope you'll join me tomorrow for more with Sam Harris.